0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to a new episode of Boutique Digital Marketing, the show that tells you everything you need to know about marketing and business development. I'm Rita Sekali, your host for today, and today we're going to be talking about whether if you're looking for a job, I have some tips for you. If you want to market your product and you want to know how to do that, I got some tips for you. And today's a little bit special this episode i'm not going to be having guests i'm actually going to be talking to you guys about a case study so that we can clearly understand what it is to be in business and we have a really good solid example that we can look up to stay tuned so you guys you might be looking for a job and if you're looking for a job then You want to hear this. If this is the case, if you're actually looking for a job, it might be important for you to know what employers look for and how firms recruit new applications or new applicants for their vacant positions, right? You're looking for a job. You want to know what is going on on the other side of, you know, the receiving end, I suppose, right? So today we're going to be talking about three things. These things are the recruiting process, we're gonna be talking about internal versus external labor markets, and we are going to be talking about personal branding. Let's start with the recruiting process. If you're new to the job market, you guys, you've probably seen on LinkedIn, you know, individuals whose job title is recruiter, right? And you've probably wondered, what is a recruiter? If you're not familiar with the job duties of a recruiter, they simply work to fill a job opening at an organization. So sometimes you see a company and you're trying to work for that company and you find recruiter, that person is always looking to fill jobs for that particular company. Sometimes they are working at a different company, an employment firm, and uh, they are recruiters that help put other people in other companies as well. So basically, their client is the employer. So they work with the employer to ensure that they find the right candidates for the vacant position. The idea is to find the right person for that job. So how do they do that? Here's the thing. Once the position is open or once the position has been established, the recruiter will then inform It will be informed of the job descriptions. They'll find out the uh, start date. They'll find out the salaries and they'll also find everything that the potential employee could be looking to ask or could be looking to find out about the hiring company right and this includes things like you know vacant um, vacation days it includes things like insurance and uh, management styles and so forth so a recruiter should know all these things or at least should have access to finding out what these things are so in short you guys once the position has been posted the recruiter will become uh, the go-to person for the information about that company The next step would be to find the right candidate. This is where you come in. Ta-da! All right, so recruiters are always on a lookout for really good candidates. So they tend to reach out to these individuals. But that doesn't mean that you have to sit there and wait until a recruiter actually contacts you. Contrary. Be the one that reaches out to these con- uh, recruiters. And I know it's hard. and I know sometimes it's uncomfortable, but they're really looking for the right candidates. And if you are the right candidate or you feel like you are, why not give it a chance? Worst thing, you guys, worst thing you- they can tell you is no. And you already have a no if you don't try so one of the best things to do is to search on LinkedIn for recruiters in the field that you hope to work in. Once you do that, you can send a small introductory, uh, introductory message and you know maybe an invite to connect. After the connection has been made, message them that you're interested in that line of work and see if they have anything. And one thing, you guys, that I really hope that you keep in mind when you're doing this is that recruiters may not have a job opening in mind when you first contact them. But, you know, if you if you put in effort, if you're, Patient, if you're consistent, and um, if you're playing it for the long game, then you'll be able to build a relationship with that recruiter so that when the time comes and they're looking for or looking to hire someone, you will be the person that comes to mind. So, the next thing that we want to talk about is internal versus external labor. The pool in which the recruiters and the employees seek to find labor is usually divided into two categories internal and external. The internal labor labor market really comes from within the company. That's why it's called internal, right, as the name suggests. Usually, HR, human resources, they will have records of every individual employee, their education, and their experience. So when they are looking for a promotion, they um, they can look at their resources, see, okay, who is available, who's good, and then... Higher that way, you know, maybe a few people apply based on their experience for that promotion um, or that newly vacant position, but it would be from within the company. And honestly, so what happens is the employee may want to transfer from one position to another, and you and that's possible. And in, in some cases, of course. And um, there are a lot of like, you hear a lot of people saying, well, get your foot in the door, get into that company, get your foot in the door. And once you do, it really becomes easier to transfer to your choice because of internal labor market and because you get to know people and it really helps to um, to build relationships. And then we have external labor markets. And this is as the name suggests, it comes from the outside, it comes from outside the company. And this is where the Recruitment process really with recruiters truly begins. And if the company really is not hiring a designated recruiter, they will usually designate a hiring manager. And this hiring manager will go through applications, they'll find the most qualified candidates, and they are the ones that usually call someone for an interview. So how do you find the external labor positions or that someone is looking for external labor? It could be advertised in several ways. Honestly, depending on the job skill, you know, or the job type, you can walk by, um, you know, a restaurant and see that they're hiring. But if you're listening to the podcast, maybe that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for something a little bit more complicated. So a um, few things that are out there today are LinkedIn Glassdoor indeed and things like that. Uh, some of the recruiting companies usually have um, usually have uh, job postings there and those you could always check out you could reach out to the recruiter and so forth so um, other ways are also you know career fairs and so forth things that we are all accustomed with I, I believe. So, uh, most likely, you will fall into the second category, you guys, if you're looking for a job. So, knowing these avenues and knowing how to navigate them will help you find your desired job. And I know, you guys, you've probably heard this a million times and you're sick of it. You're just like, I really just want a job. But it works. It works if you're consistent. It works if you're patient. And... It, th- there's no other way to put it that it's, it's just a sucky process. It's just a sucky time to kind of just wait. Um, but while waiting, continually improve on yourself, continually look at um, the job descriptions and see what you can do in the field that you like and see what you can do. And if you can't do something... Learn it. Meanwhile, so that the next time you apply for something, you can say, oh, yeah, I can I can do this. I um, I learned this. I have I'm confident this is my portfolio. Try out things and see what happens. OK, so this brings us and this ushers us into personal branding. You guys know that one question that is usually asked at every single interview that makes us all fumble, you know, The one where the interviewer asks, why are you fit for this position? Why do you want this position? So in our heads, I have a feeling that we obviously, the answer is obvious, which is like, obviously, because I need a job. But we all know that's not the appropriate answer to give. And to be honest that's not the appropriate answer you want to give yourself. That's not the only justification you should be giving yourself for seeking out a job that will lead to your career, that will, you know, maybe start your career or maybe enhance your career. It's not, I just need a job, you know, depending on the situation, of course, you know, everyone has different situations, but don't let that be your only motivation, especially if you have the option of just, you know, being a little bit more patient. So, so, and when we are asked this, this question, we typically make up something on the spot. But what if we actually had a good answer? Like a really good answer. Wouldn't that be much better? So, a major aspect of finding a job that many people overlook is personal branding. So, the job you so greatly desire has to desire you as well. You look for a position that you want, and you want that position generally because it adds value to your life. It adds something to your life. And at the same time, you begin to highlight how you add value to that position right? It's a mutual relationship. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. Otherwise, there's no point in getting hired at a company in the first place. You want to be in a place where you give and you also take and you also have the potential to grow, if not in position and in salary, then, you know, personal fulfillment at the very least. Okay, so this is where personal branding comes in. What is personal branding? I love how you guys have brilliant questions. Um, So what is personal branding? Personal branding is a way of highlighting who you are, your values and strength, and what value you add to that organization. The first step in doing that is knowing the companies that you are applying to. In our modern age, you guys, in our modern time, companies have no problem being vocal about their mission and their vision and what they believe, even if it's not related to their field. And they usually have a set of core beliefs that they operate by and they are not afraid to voice their opinion. They are just, you know, very vocal and they want people to know that this is this is what we believe in. So you may find that similar companies hold similar beliefs, which means that you can begin to brand your skills in a way that appeals to the desires of these companies. Think of it as a way of marketing your skills and values. At the same time, you want to ensure that these skills and values will be used in a place that aligns with your core beliefs and purpose in life. So ask yourself, who am I? Where do I want to be? What's my mission? And I know you guys, these could be like terribly hard questions to answer. But once you have a relatively good idea of the answer, it becomes a lot easier to find a job that you're excited about. And let's just be real, you guys. You want to be excited about your job. You want to do something that you find fulfilling and you want to work in a place that you also uh, find that finds fulfillment within you as well and that really stems from knowing yourself and knowing where you want to be and how uh, to get there and not necessarily step by step but starting the process so with that said we are going to shift gears to digital marketing and today we're going to be talking about how to market your product stay tuned All right, you guys, so welcome to our digital marketing segment for today. And today we're going to be talking about how to market your product. Every business owner believes that their product or service is superior in one way or another. Otherwise, what's the point of opening the business, right? They want to say, okay, well, this is why they want you to buy from them. So they say, okay, this is how my product is superior. The objective of your marketing team should be to highlight the elements that make your product and your services or your services just superior or so great as, as you kind of mentioned. So in order to highlight these qualities, you have to truly get the essence of your product or service. You have to answer the wonderful WH questions that you've learned about in school. The who, the what, the where, the when, the why, and the how. Who's the product for? What problem is this product solving? Where is this product found? When is this product used? In what situation? Why is this product essential? And how will this product solve a problem that is, uh, that the customer is looking to be solved? When these questions have been answered, then the marketing team can begin to craft a useful marketing strategy. So you guys, what are we talking about today in this segment? We're going to be talking about three things, the actual, the core and the augmented product, the product life cycle and tips for marketers. So let's begin with the actual core and augmented pro- uh, products. There are three elements that should be taken into consideration when your marketing team is looking to market a certain product. What are these elements, you ask? These are actual product, core product, and augmented product. Actual product, you guys, refers to the product itself devoid of branding. It is the product down to its simplest form. For example, a glass bottle is what is actually being sold, right? Just a glass bottle. You can add a brand name on it. You can make it look pretty. You can add other stuff to it, associate other things to it. But down to the very core, it is just a glass bottle next you guys we have core product and that refers to the core purpose of the product why is this product being sold what benefits does it provide how is this product helpful and really you guys one thing to keep in mind is that when a product is being sold the customer does not want to buy the product for the sake of the product for example you don't have a smartphone because of the phone. You have a smartphone because of the benefits associated with it. Maybe you have one because it's, you know, accessibility to the internet. Maybe that's the reason, that's the benefit you derive from having a smartphone. Whatever the reasons are, these attributes are the core product. And lastly, we have augmented products. And these highlight the added dimensions of the product. These highlight things like price, brand, color choices, warranties, return policies, really everything that is added onto the product. Basically, it is just any additional key points that will make the product more attractive to that desired customer. And they make the product more valuable. So now that we know that, we're going to move a little bit on to the product lifecycle. Another concept that you want to keep in mind when profiling a product is the product's life cycle. What you want to do is examine the product's expected life cycle. Your marketing team can determine the how, the when, and to whom this product is being uh, marketed. This would be contingent upon, obviously, market segmentation, which we've talked about before, but generally speaking you guys, a product's life cycle could be divided into four categories. These are introduction, growth, maturities, and decline. We're going to begin with introduction, obviously, because it says introduction. is in the name, okay? This is where, um, you know, the product is being introduced to the market. That means that the growth, is relatively slow, Um, you know, it's the stage where the potential market is getting to know the product. Um, In this stage, the, uh, the objective of the marketing team should be to raise awareness and not to increase sales. Now, obviously, surely, we hope that, you know, raising awareness will lead to an increase in sales, but that's not the main goal for the time being. Once the, market, uh, the marketers raise awareness, then the product enters into the growth phase of the life cycle. And here, you guys, is where people will begin to buy the product. They begin investing in it. And the objective in this state is to ensure that these customers become brand ambassadors that tell their friends and families about your amazing product. And marketers in this stage should begin to advertise to people that exhibit similar traits to those who have already made the purchase. And during this growth period, if you're creating an entirely new product or something that's not wildly found, you may start to see an increase in competitors. And to combat that, you'll want to create a convoluted strategy that's really not easy to replicate, you wanna make yourself very um, different or set yourself aside. And to do that, you have to create something that is not easy to copy. And not by the product itself, but by the way you are presenting yourself, by the way you're running the company, by the way everything is included. So that said, uh, now we move on to maturity. And maturity occurs when the customer or the market becomes very saturated. Really, there is no place for newcomers to enter, new competitors. It's kind of just a very saturated market. And at this stage, the objective of the marketers is to make sure that this is the go-to brand for the needs of the customers. And lastly, or the last phase we have is the decline phase, which as really the name suggests, it is where the sales begin to drop and customers begin to look for a new product or a new trend. Now, all this information is fine and dandy and it's beautiful, but I got some tips for marketers. The major lessons that your marketing team should take from life cycles uh, is that sooner or later this product will no longer be needed if the company wants to keep growing they have to be innovative and constantly evolving take the iphone for example iphone one and iphone x are similar in many ways but the product has definitely evolved you can tell that it came from this and now it's something else Because the product is constantly evolving. And this change may be a simple change in packaging design, which makes marketing team, which means that like the marketing team will have to be involved with, you know, in the case of the iPhone, you have people who are engineering new things and that's a different field. But marketers, what they do is they look at the community, they look at the potential customers and they derive answers from them. I mean, look at this. Think of food products that you've been that have been around since your childhood. Their taste may be the same, but their packaging has definitely changed. And marketers need to be innovative and make sure that the product stays alive as long as pot- possible. And one way to ensure that this happens is to foster a culture of inclusivity among employees in the company. And what's going on is you want to, you know, promote a culture of reward for innovation as well. You may find that, you know, engineers have a vision for how the product could be transformed. And you may find that, you know, when talking to these engineers, marketers come up with something very cool and very creative so that this vision can be implemented. So from within the company, you have to foster this culture of inclusivity. Um, And, you know, properly reward people externally you guys you also have to listen to what the customer wants what does the customer want what does the customer need and those will change over time those will change depending on uh, the trends that are happening around depending on you know uh, sometimes, like if you're selling uh, face face products or whatever, it can depend on the climate. It can depend on um, the type of you know maybe that person now has acne that they didn't have before, new issues, new things that are that are arising. So you want to listen to the consumer, and that may be you know straightforward but as a marketer you have to do your research you have to do you have to study trends you have to implement surveys get feedback and transform that feedback into something that would satisfy the needs of the customer even if they do not uh, if they have not yet verbalized that need or that desire so that's it for this segment for today You want to stay tuned because we are going to do a case study, and it's a really exciting one, so be with me in a little bit. All right, you guys, so today we are going to be talking about a a case study, which is different than what we normally do, but I wanted to kind of uh, maybe open up a different platform, maybe just kind of, uh, you know... Experiment with this idea just to see what other companies are doing, just so that you guys have, um, you know, see the challenges that others have gone through and how they have been able to maintain this. So, today's um, case study is titled Digital Divide Data, and it comes from MIT Slogan Management, the School of Management. And it was written on September fifteenth, two 2009. So, uh, what do we want to talk about is that this company uh, was established in 2001. And what it was, it was a, like an IT outsourcing company that really just strived to educate people in other parts of the world and train them so that they have better opportunities. And it outsourced to them, particularly it dealt with um uh, young adults that had no opportunities, and a lot of um, a good substantial amount of these people also suffered from certain disabilities that prevented them from growing. So, here's some history about this company. And uh, this company was uh, founded by uh, Jeremy Hochstein. And he was the CEO and the co-founder. And what had happened was that he visited Cambodia in November of 2000. uh, 2000. He was uh, going on his job and just working. And he really was just... You know, astonished by the level of poverty that Cambodia had, and that it lacked opportunities for um, young people, for them to be able to provide for their company, for their uh, families, for them to be able to grow and to empower themselves. So, what he decided to do was he decided to create this IT outsourcing company that would um, provide data entry and digitization services. But at the same time, it would take the time to train these people and to give them um, a, a, good, a good opportunity. So, in two thousand and three, um, they had built a few offices. They built, you know, they had built the one in, in the first one, and then in two thousand and three, they had built two additional offices because they found that a lot of people were unable to move uh, to capital cities to further their education. And so they decided to, to bring education to them. So that brings us now to the start of 2009. And in 2009, you you know, like they were booking book, big contracts and so forth, However, because of the cost that it would take to um, to teach individuals, because of the cost that it would take to, to submit so many scholarships, to give out so many scholarships, um, and still actually pay people in the States, they were simply just breaking even. They weren't making profit. They were just breaking even in terms of operating expenses, and you know... It's not like they weren't growing. The clientele was actually growing, but the issue was the more clients there were, the more employees they'd had to cover. And, uh, you know, they had to maintain the only way they were able to maintain themselves was really through donations and through scholarships. And that's that's how it was. So a little bit about, um, you know, Cambodia and things are an operation there. They found, uh, you know, the digital divide data uh, company found that it had to rely on, you know, the company's mission for it to be able to um, get professionals. So in Cambodia, there weren't people that were very trained. There weren't many people that were very, you know, like really good at managing certain things because of, you know, the high level of poverty. And so the company really just relied on its social mission to recruit trained professionals. And and the thing is, at that time in Cambodia, the IT field was growing very rapidly. And so um, so it was very hard and pretty expensive to get skilled managers. And so that was that. That was one of the struggles they were facing. And um, apart from, you know, like the education and the experience, another thing they found that in, in Cambodia – the people were getting educated, but it was a lot of times they would go through years of theoretical you know, education without never having actually touched a computer. And so that presented another challenge from the country itself, from the place of operation. Now, with that, there's there were also um, operational challenges that came about. And some of these operational challenges were that while you know uh the digital divide data was getting big clients there were huge companies that were fighting for international deals and they were winning obviously those those deals and because you know the uh, digital divide data was a small company they couldn't actually do that they couldn't win those international uh deals so quickly And another thing is that because, you know, of all the challenges that were found in the country, that were found in the offices, that were found in the locations, you know, not having a centralized system, not having like really good founded education and so forth, it, uh, you know, it became harder for them to actually, uh, you know, convince people or be able to get those deals as well. And so that's a little bit... Uh, that w- that posed another challenge. Uh, then we have the recruitment and the training. And when we talk about recruitment and the training, this was one of the fundamental aspects of the digital divide data. While other companies had trained professionals, they had people who had been working in the field, it was easier for them to get things done and so forth. The entire mission of this company rested on the fact that Um, they needed to train people and they would have to invest into training programs and to training staffs for six months before they actually were able to help out a client. And so that's another challenge. In 2008, the uh, digital divide data company decided that they want to grow and they wanted to grow from their existing 1,500 people while Uh, expanding globally so they don't just want to stay in Cambodia they actually wanted to grow as well (laughs) and to reach like other parts of the world the idea was that Cambodia's IT field was just growing it was booming and so by that time it wasn't such a tremendous need of course, the offices continued, but it wasn't as much of a need as it was before. And there were other places in the world like India, China, and Vietnam that, um, that they were looking into. So by growing, they would have had to invest a lot of money if they were to do it alone. So they were looking at that time, they were looking at three options. This was uh, organic growth. It was the partnerships uh, or joint ventures, and it was the partnership with international uh, nonprofit organizations or outsourcing firms. So what the report from MIT that I'm still reading from, obviously, well, I'm kind of explaining, I'm not really reading it uh, verbatim, but uh, what this report says is that the organic growth, they looked at it as a complete control. So the company still had complete control of everything of the strategies and the management in the new offices and so forth. However, that would have put a strain on the company's managerial resources and it was really hard if they were already just barely breaking even it would have been a lot harder to kind of uh, continue so and without like other partners with organic or organic social growth or organic growth the company would have to lay out you know, like a significant amount of money before they can start, you know, the establishment of the sites and facilities and offices so that people can work there. And they would, you know, this, being able to do this would highly depend on the fundraising team in the States so that they can, um, they can raise the fund. The second idea was a partnership or a joint venture with local entrepreneurs, the only issue with that or one of the major issues was that it wasn't clear what the digital divide data company could provide for these local entrepreneurs who had already you know they'd already been outsourcing their businesses and they're already kind of like working in the field so they wanted to see okay what can we benefit uh benefit them and this obviously would have been you know Um, It would have been a time-consuming ordeal, and it would have, you know, uh, provided access to a a committed local partners with detailed knowledge of the labor. So that was some of the positive. However, like we said, and it would have also provided a rapid expansion because people know people, and that's how you get connected. But like I said, the major issue was what could the digital divide data provide for those local entrepreneurs? And then lastly, we have uh, social franchising. Um, And social franchising, not lastly, I'm sorry. Social franchising was just like this huge buzzword. And it was, the idea was to kind of create a franchise Except it's a little bit different since it is um, since it's this training program, since it's a little bit it's not like a physical location like you do like a restaurant, you franchise a restaurant and so forth. And so the downside to it is that, it would have taken, you know, like quite a bit of time between negotiations and contracts and legal arrangement and making sure that everything in within this business is standardized. So that kind of, uh, you know, like what they called a franchise package to complete that wouldn't have taken a long time. However, the positive aspect of it is that um, it could achieve scalability relatively quickly like it could be achieved uh, it could scale very quickly versus other options as well and you know, like the, the the difference that they pointed out that the authors of this study, of this case study, pointed out is that in a traditional franchise model, revenues were locally sourced and franchises were given territorial rights that precluded other units from seeking revenue in a particular geographic area. So it kind of like prevented others from being in that geographic area as well. In the case of digital divide data, um. A contract source in the United States could theoretically be assigned to any capable um, digital divide data site around the world. So, you know, when we're talking about a franchise, people around that franchise or other franchisees around that franchise cannot take each other's business because they're competing with each other. However, in this case, if this was to happen... It would have been any one of the sites anywhere around the world could do the work because the work is being outsourced, anyways. So, now, lastly, now actually, lastly, we have this uh, concept of partnering with international organizations. And this is this came about because, you know some of the senior management at the Digital Divide data had been um, they had been approached by other international nonprofits that were willing to help and, and willing to expand the, their model into other countries as well positives on this would be it would provide a capital and human resources right and it would be like fast-paced expansion because the money is there the people are there and the work could be done right uh, so that's that's that now today um as i did some research so that was the end of that study that was uh in 2009 and they don't have the actual solution or what the company ended up choosing. And I had a, a like a bit of a harder time finding out what they ended up choosing, but I can tell you for sure that the company is still thriving today. It's expanded to uh, different parts of the world. Uh, they have things in um, in different parts of Africa now, in different parts of Asia, and um, and so forth. So their process now is to recruit, to train, to give them work, study, and. Uh, to earn, and so and so forth. So that's, that's that. The reason why I wanted to share this case study with you is because if you are working on your business, and if you are working on creating your own business, or maybe we talked about global expansion before, there are going to be challenges. And before you Take on these challenges, it's very important to realize that there are options and to truly study your options to think okay, what would make the best? Um, this outcome? Or what would be the best decision to make in this time? And how do I proceed? And if I'm to choose this decision, can I then reverse it? Can I then go back to what it was before? Or can I pull out of this, uh, this contract? And that's something you guys, that we have to keep in mind when creating these international businesses, or when we're looking for expansions, or we're looking for an idea, maybe you have a restaurant, and you want to open another one, and you're not sure if you should Um, just open another one or just turn it into a franchise or so forth. Another thing that I really liked about this particular case study or this particular company is that it's very mission-driven. We've talked quite a bit about having like a, a mission or a central mission for marketing, a central mission for your business. But in this case, you really see how the mission is driving the business. It's not the money that's driving the business. It's really a cognizant choice and saying that, okay, this is what we believe in and everything else, everything else that we do has to fall under that category. If it doesn't, then we don't take it on. I mean, it would have been easy for them to, to outsource to other places and book international deals. But For them to truly live to their model, for them to really, really uh, make an impact, they had to stick with their mission. And for, you know, it's been working, you know, for about 19 years now. So it's obviously it gets a chance to work. And by the time they were looking to expand, it had been there for about nine years. So missions, you guys, really help you drive your business because it gives you some, it gives you a specific goal and it gives you a specific, not necessarily goal, but a specific direction, a specific direction that you want to head in no matter what. So and that is it for today. I hope really, really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a little bit different. Um, so if you guys want to give me feedback on whether you liked it or not, if you did, we can do some more case studies. We could look more at things and see how they're working. And one thing that really I would just advise you to kind of think about if you uh, if you will, is you know just think about this case that we did and consider these questions like what made the um, the company, the digital divide data so successful? Uh, what were the constraints and what strategies should be used? Again, this study comes from MIT slogan uh, in the School of Management and you can find it online and it's free online. Um, I know a lot of key studies aren't, but this one is. So just look it up, read it on your own, tell me what you think, and uh, we'll go from there. If you guys wanna contact me, if you need help with your business or business development or digital marketing, um, y'all know that my company is Boutique Digital Marketing. It's not just a show. And you can contact me at 909-333-5116. And you could email us at info at marketing dot com. This is Rita Secaoli and um, I will be with you guys next week for a new episode of Boutique Digital Marketing. Don't forget to listen up.